This podcast is brought to you by the Reform Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following is a sermon preached on a Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day. For more sermons, see our sermon audio page. We read God's Word this morning as it is found in Acts chapter 27. Acts 27. Let's read this inspired record of history. And when it was determined that we should sail into Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners unto one named Julius, a centurion of Augustus's band. And entering into a ship of Adramitium, we launched meaning to sail by the coasts of Asia, one Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, being with us. And the next day we touched at Sidon, and Julius courteously entreated Paul, and gave him liberty to go unto his friends to refresh himself. And when we had launched from thence, we sailed under Cyprus, because the winds were contrary And when we had sailed over the sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing into Italy, and he put us therein. And when we had sailed slowly many days, and scarce were come over against Cnidus, The wind not suffering us, we sailed under Crete over against Salmon. And hardly passing it, came unto a place which is called the Fair Havens, nigh whereunto was the city of Lycia. Now when much time was spent, and when sailing was now dangerous, because the fast was now already passed, Paul admonished them, And said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading and ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. And because the haven was not commodious to winter in, the more part advised to depart thence also, if by any means they might attain to Phoenice, and there to winter, which is an haven of Crete, and lieth toward the southwest and northwest. And when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, loosing thence, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after there arose against it a tempestuous wind called Euryclidon. And when the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive. And running under a certain island, which is called Clauda, we had much work to come by the boat, which when they had taken up, they used helps undergirding the ship. And fearing lest they should fall into the quicksands, strake sail, and so were driven. And we being exceedingly tossed with a tempest, the next day they lightened the ship. 
And the third day we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. And when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. But after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, you should have hearkened unto me, and not, loose, not have loosed from Crete, and to have gained this harm and loss. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am, and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar, and, lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe, God, that it shall be even as it was told me. Howbeit we must be cast upon a certain island, but when the fourteenth night was come, as we were driven up and down in Adria about midnight, the shipmen deemed that they drew near to some country and sounded and found it twenty fathoms. And when they had gone a little further, they sounded again and found it fifteen fathoms. Then fearing lest we should have fallen upon rocks, they cast four anchors out of the stern and wished for the day. And as the shipmen were about to flee out of the ship, when they had let down the boat into the sea, under color as though they would have cast anchors out of the foreship, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Except these abide in the ship, ye cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut off the ropes of the boat and let her fall off. And while the day was coming on, Paul besought them all to take meat, saying, this day is the fourteenth day that ye have tarried and continued fasting, having taken nothing. Wherefore I pray you to take some meat, for this is for your health, for there shall not an hair fall from the head of any of you. And when he had thus spoken, he took bread and gave thanks to God in presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then were they all of good cheer, and they also took some meat. And we were in all in the ship two hundred threescore and sixteen souls. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and cast out the wheat into the sea. And when it was day, they knew not the land. But they discovered a certain creek with a shore into the which they were minded if it were possible to thrust in the ship. And when they had taken up the anchors, they committed themselves unto the sea and loosed the rudder bands and hoist up the mainsail to the wind and made toward shore. And falling into a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground and the forepart stuck fast and remained unmovable, but the hinder part was broken with the violence of the waves. And the soldiers' counsel was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim out and escape. But the centurion, willing to save Paul, kept them from their purpose, 
and commanded that they which could swim should cast themselves first into the sea and get to land. And the rest, some on boards and some on broken pieces of the ship. And so it came to pass that they escaped all safe to land. We read that far in God's inspired word. And now we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 1. Lord's Day 1. What is thy only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. How many things are necessary for thee to know that thou, enjoying this comfort, mayest live and die happily? Three. The first, how great my sins and miseries are, the second, how I may be delivered from all my sins and miseries. The third, how I shall express my gratitude to God for such a deliverance. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we begin anew our cycle through the doctrines of Scripture as explained by the Heidelberg Catechism. This practice, as you know, of going through these doctrines in the Catechism is a requirement of our church order. In Article 68 of the Church Order of the Protestant Reformed Churches, we find this statement, the minister shall on Sunday explain briefly the sum of Christian doctrine comprehended in the Heidelberg Catechism, so that as much as possible, the explanation shall be annually completed according to the division of the catechism itself for that purpose. This requirement of the church order is not the only reason, of course, that we have the preaching through these doctrines of the catechism again and again. But we know, and we have willingly agreed to this requirement of the church order because we know that they are of benefit to us as God's people. I hope and pray that you have experienced that benefit yourself as many of you have gone through listening to sermons again and again preach on these doctrines. To impress upon you that benefit, however, let us answer three questions briefly at the beginning of this sermon. Three questions and sometimes challenges which are brought against the preaching through these doctrines of the catechism. First, 
there is a question generally about confessions. Why have confessions such as this Heidelberg Catechism? There are many today, of course, who object, many in popular evangelical churches, and even more and more in Reformed churches, so-called, who object to creeds or minimize the importance of creeds and confessions. Often it is said, no creed, but Christ, making it sound like creeds or confessions are opposed to Jesus Christ. Or it is said, we believe in Scripture, not man-made documents like these confessions and creeds, making it sound then as though confessions are opposed to the Scriptures. But such, such objections to confessions really fall away when we remember one point. That is, that Jesus Christ Himself calls us to have confessions. You know the familiar passages which show that. Many of you go over them when you make confession of faith publicly. In Matthew 10, verse 32, Jesus says, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. And Paul takes up that teaching of Jesus Christ in Romans 10, verse 9, and says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You see, God's elect people in whom he works faith will confess, will confess their faith. Thus, we're called to have confessions. Yes, in those passages, those confessions refer to the verbal expression of our faith, especially what we say, and most importantly, what we say with our hearts and mouths. But the very reason, you see, we put it down on paper or we have it in the Heidelberg Catechism is so that God's people learn what to confess. So that what is written is expressed from the heart and with the mouth. The Catechism is used to instruct God's people in the truths of Scripture so that they might confess that truth and not just confess it as individuals saying this or that or whatever they think the Bible is saying but now as individuals together united saying the same thing as the word confession literally means say the same thing as expressed in something like the Heidelberg Catechism we have confessions like the catechism is exactly because God calls us to confess our faith. Secondly, a question is this, should we preach such confessions? Yes, we should have confessions, but should we preach such confessions? And the short answer is yes, for how else are they kept in the hearts of God's people that they might be confessed from their mouths. The doctrines of the confessions, the truths of Scripture, which are found in these confessions, should be preached that the people may receive them and her hearing them, believe them, know them well, 
and confess them. To clarify, the authority, the authority does not lie in the confessions themselves, of themselves. The authority is the Word, the Word of God, the Scriptures, which these confessions are explaining and organizing. And so while we use this beautiful and accurate language of the catechism to express the doctrines of Scripture, we always remember that behind the confessions and this Heidelberg Catechism also is the Scripture, the authority, the very Word of Jesus Christ. It's not Caspar Olivianus or Zacharias or Sinus, the two writers of the catechism, or Frederick III, the one who commissioned the writing of this catechism, or any other man who says this is true, that that's why it's true. But it's the Word of God. And you see that in the many proof texts that the catechism is based upon. Catechism is a tool that God has graciously given, given to us, to our churches, a heritage which we receive with gladness so that we might have this confession of God's Word in our hearts. And so we preach it. And the third question is, why the Catechism and not the Belgic Confession and the Canons of Dort? Other confessions in our churches, the three forms of unity together called, so-called. It's not because the Belgic Confession or the Canons are somehow inferior to the Catechism, but rather this. The reason we preach through the doctrines as the Catechism explains it, the Heidelberg Catechism explains it, is because the Heidelberg Catechism is most conducive for preaching. As the church order explained, it's organized into those 52 Lord's Days, divided so, for the purpose of preaching. The canons, as you know, many of you pre-confession students who just finished this year, the canons focus narrowly on the doctrines of salvation. They do not include all the essential doctrines of the Reformed faith in Scripture. The canons are limited in its scope. The catechism is more broad, and it covers it comprehensively. The Belgic Confession does cover the same doctrines of the Heidelberg Catechism. But the Belgian Confession organizes those doctrines in a more systematic manner, more conducive for a classroom, in seminary perhaps, or in the catechism room. The Heidelberg Catechism, however, is most conducive with its style, with its approach, personal, experiential, it was made, it was written for preaching. And so without shame, therefore, and with thankfulness to God, I lead you to consider the glorious biblical truths of Scripture as the Catechism explains it. May it be a living confession in your heart. And may it be a comfort to your soul. That's the theme of the Heidelberg Catechism, comfort. And it's that word that we focus on today. 
Catechism's theme of comfort is consistent with a biblical aim for preaching. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Isaiah 40, verse 1. And so I begin our consideration of the doctrines and the catechism with this introductory sermon about comfort for your comfort and mine, that which we desperately need. My only comfort, first, the idea of comfort, second, the content of comfort, and then finally, the exclusive comfort. What is comfort? What is comfort? That's a slightly different question. It is a different question from question answer or question one of the Heidelberg Catechism. I don't mean what is the content of comfort, which is what the catechism means in its question. We'll get to that in the second point. But what is the nature? What is the idea of comfort? When you say, I have comfort or I am comforted. What do you mean by that word comfort? And perhaps the best way to get that idea of comfort in our hearts and minds is by considering the example of someone who has comfort and often contrasting it with someone who doesn't have comfort. And that's what we find in Acts 27, a vivid picture in history for us to consider. Paul is on that ship. A primitive kind of ship, remember? Back in those days, in the middle of a storm. He has this comfort. And we learn it from him. Paul is facing not just a storm, but I remind you of all the circumstances which surround him. Past, present, and future. Here's Paul's past. We find it in 2 Corinthians 11. 23 through 29, he sums it up this way. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths often, of the Jews five times received I forty stripes save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned, Thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren." in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and in nakedness, besides those things that are without or outside, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is offended? And I Burn not. Paul has suffered. No, not nearly as much as Jesus Christ suffered. For Paul never suffered the wrath of God on the cross. But Paul suffered. 
all his life. Acts 27 does not record for us the first storm that Paul endured. In a figurative sense, but also in a literal sense, Paul had endured storms before this one. He had been recently captured by the Jews in Jerusalem, as you know, and had faced much injustice at their hands and the hands of Felix and Festus and Agrippa. He'd appealed to Caesar. Now he was on the way to Rome. That was his past, his present. He stood in a ship, a prisoner among many other prisoners, with smelly quarters in the middle of Euryclidon, a great storm. Euryclidon means wind and waves. Winds and waves crashed against that ship. And it would not have been the case if the captain of the ship and the centurion and the others had listened to him. But they had ignored his advice that he had received from God. And they had continued on their way to find a different haven, a different port for their ship to winter in. And now God in His sovereignty caused that ship to face the storm of Euryclidon. Paul felt alone. In the future, whether he died on that ship or on a deserted island, if he survived shipwreck, or whether he died in Rome, Paul knew soon after some more labors, he would die before Nero. And there Paul stood. In that predicament, in the midst of those circumstances, full of what we call comfort. Comfort. Picture that. Paul, a Jew, Probably a dark-haired man with brown skin, weathered and, and tattered clothes with shackles around his wrists or ankles. The storm at full strength beating against the ship. A storm which had been beating against the ship for some time already. And he stands up in the middle of that boat. And there's peace in his heart and upon his face and in his voice. As he says what he says, verse 22, I exhort you, be of good cheer. Verse 24, fear not. Verse 25, wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. That's quite a scene that shows the comfort of the believer. Think of Paul, especially in contrast to the others around him. Remember who were around him. There were criminals of all kinds. There were seasoned sailors, those who had faced storms before. There were soldiers who had faced many battles. These criminals, soldiers, Seasoned sailors 
were supposed to be some of the hardiest, the, the toughest men of all. They were supposed to be men of courage, even keeled, so to speak, resolute in the face of the storm, but there in Euryclidon, violent agitation not only surrounded them, but was in their hearts. Not a single man could remain a man by himself. There was panic, screams of desperation and despair. In desperation, they had thrown everything overboard. The sailors were planning, and some soldiers were planning secretly to leave everyone else on the ship and escape on a boat. So afraid were they. No one had eaten for 14 days. And all was hopeless to them. It was only a matter of time that they would be dashed against the rocks, they thought. And it's in the midst of this chaos and contrast to all those around him that Paul shows that he had comfort. And these are the words especially which revealed his comfort. Verse 23. For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am, and whom I serve. Whose I am, and whom I serve. That is the same expression as Lord's Day 1. In different words, but if you had asked Paul, what is your comfort, Paul? What is your comfort as you stand upon this ship? What is your comfort in contrast to everyone else around you? What is your comfort? Paul would have said, God, whose I am, whom I serve. And we say the same thing when we say that I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own. But I belong, I belong, whose I am. I belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the comfort of Paul. What is this comfort of Paul and what is this comfort of Casper Olivianus? Let's define that word comfort. Comfort, I can give you two words, is experiential knowledge. Comfort is knowledge, experience, in the heart. The true knowledge of God, experience in the heart of the believer. Or defined along the lines of Acts 27, true knowledge of God, experience in the heart of a believer, which gives him calm in the midst of a storm. The comfort is, first of all, Knowledge, an intellectual kind of knowledge, a knowledge of truth. Question two, notice, shows us the catechism making that explicit. It speaks of comfort as knowledge. How many things are necessary for thee to know that thou enjoying this comfort mayest live and die happily? Comfort is true knowledge, knowledge of the truth of God. The Catechism goes on to give us the outline of the entire Heidelberg Catechism 
Knowledge especially of my sins and miseries. Knowledge of my deliverance from those sins and miseries. And knowledge of how to show my gratitude to God. That knowledge, intellectually understood, is my comfort. But it's more than just knowledge. Intellectually, it's not just knowledge up here in the head. But it's knowledge experienced. It's knowledge experienced in the heart. Yes, it's knowledge felt. Christianity is not only about feelings. It's not first about feelings. But comfort, think about that word comfort, is that knowledge experienced and even felt within the soul. The word comfort in the English is derived from the Latin, which literally means with strength. With strength. Comfort is that knowledge which God causes by His Spirit to sink down within the heart so that it is experienced. And that which is experienced, the feeling that is felt, is that inner stability or strength in the midst of a storm like this. That was Paul's comfort. And so comforted was he that he was able to stand there in the midst of the storm and even to preach in the hearing of other men who were trembling in great fear. This experiential knowledge comes to us often by means of a messenger. In verse 23, Paul indicates that his comfort or this experiential knowledge came by an angel of God that appeared to him. And Paul is not saying that the angel himself was the comfort. And Paul is saying that the message, the message of truth which was spoken by the angel that was what God brought down into his heart and gave him this comfort. Significant because the word comfort in the original is paraclete or parakaleo. Literally, the idea of comfort in the Greek is to come alongside another and speak. The picture in that word is this. You see someone who is troubled. You see someone who is anxious. You see someone who is afraid. And someone walks up to that person who is trembling. Who doesn't have that inner stability. That someone perhaps whispers in his ear a message. A message. And that message enters the ear not only, but the mind and the heart. And then that one who is troubled, that one who is fearing, that one who is agitated now raises his head. And there's a peace that passeth understanding in his soul and even as seen on his face. God uses a messenger Ultimately, that messenger is the Holy Spirit. 
He is called the Comforter by Jesus Christ in John 14. He is the God of all comfort who is the breath of God. The one who is breathed into our ears and hearts as that message comes. But that Holy Spirit, the Comforter, uses, of course, the preaching, the preacher, and not just the preacher, elders, deacons, a spouse, your parents, your own children, a fellow believer, a brother and sister in Christ, to speak the message of God's Word. The Spirit works as that message is spoken by a messenger and gives that inner strength, that settling in the midst of a storm. What is that specific message or the content of comfort? Catechism in answer to outlines all of Scripture, sin, salvation, service, we can put it. It summarizes the whole gospel. Here Paul confesses it briefly, whose I am. Or, I am not my own, but I belong. I belong to Jesus Christ. Understand, first of all, the negative of that, the negative side of, I am not my own. To the minds of pagans and to these unbelievers on the ship with Paul, saying, I am not my own, but I belong to someone else, it's not only odd to them, but it doesn't seem comforting to many in this world. Because they would rather say, and we with them too often in our lives, would rather say and think, I am my own. I belong to myself. No one's the boss of me. No one owns me. We think that and feel that through our life. There's a plague of Selfishness and independency in America today. I'm autonomous. I make my own choices. And it doesn't matter what other people may say. I have my rights and my freedoms. I am no slave to anyone else. I'm the master of my destiny. I have the strength to do it on my own. That selfish, me-centered independency is the philosophy of this world. And many think this is what is comforting because it appeals to pride. But here's a problem. As you should know, it is a lie. It is a lie. The truth of the matter is you're either a servant of Jesus Christ, the Master, belonging to him, or you are owned and you belong to another master, which is Satan. And all of those who imagine they belong to no master at all are simply fooled by the master Satan. It's a deception. He appeals to the pride of mankind to convince them 
and to make them feel as though they belong to no one and even to convince them that that is somehow comfort. And ironically, if a man or woman is honest with himself, he soon realizes, and God will make him or her realize, that belonging to no one is terrifying. God has his way of impressing that upon us, doesn't he? And failures and loneliness and storms like Euryclidon. All those soldiers, those criminals, those sailors, accustomed to being independent, who probably thought and felt very often in their lives, I am my own. Now in this storm, are impressed with terror. It's not good to be alone. It's not good to be by yourself. That is not comforting. It's discomforting. And when they heard Paul confess what he did, it must have welled up within them many a desire for the same comfort. I belong to someone, Paul says. No, not to some group, first of all, though he did belong to a body of Christians, the church. I belong to God. I belong to the Lord of this storm. I belong to him who sent the storm and the one who with one word, peace, can calm the storm. I belong to the king of angels who sent his messenger last night, whose I am, whom I serve. And yes, indeed, to belong to someone does include the necessity of serving him, as Paul says, whose I am, whom I serve. Because if he owns me as the master, then I must serve him. And sometimes that serving is difficult. But that also means that someone who owns me as my master cares for me in the midst of the storm. And that is what enabled Paul to stand there with comfort while the rest cowered in fear. Four main reasons Paul belonged to God and we with Paul belong to God. First, Paul was saying, I belong to God by virtue of election. By virtue of election. Oh, what a glorious, wonderful truth, which we will come back to as we continue through the Heidelberg Catechism. Not only a reformed truth of the Catechism, but that of the Scripture. Part of the comfort of the believer is I belong to God because He chose me. Not because I chose Him. I belong to God because He chose me, and that means He chose me from eternity. I never, I never, from eternity, ever belong to anyone else, but in His counsel I belong to God. He's always for me, before the foundations of the world. He always chose to adopt me as his child. Not because of anything that I have done or ever will do. But only because of his grace. 
because he sees me in love in Jesus Christ. Second, Paul says, I belong to God by virtue of creation. Having chosen me, he created me. All things in this world, and then also my soul and body, as the catechism refers to. Soul and body. Fearfully and wonderfully, he made me. Caused me to conceive, be conceived in my mother's womb. To be born. To make me who I am today. Unique, different. And he has had many wonderful thoughts toward me. I belong to him because he created me. He chose me. He created me. Third, by virtue of my redemption. Redemption. He bought me. My soul and body. My soul and body were conceived in sin because in Adam I fell. From Adam I inherited a sinful nature under the power of Satan. But God, but as the Catechism says, my faithful Savior Jesus Christ with His precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from the power of the devil. Bought me. Redeemed me by His perfect life and shed blood. And therefore, by virtue of His redemption, I am His. I belong to Him. Election, creation, redemption, and forth, that which really sums it all up as the heart of the Reformed faith. I belong to Him by virtue of covenant. Covenant. For Jesus, having died for me and redeemed me, took me, embraced me as a husband embraces his wife, caused me to experience a friendship, a covenant relationship like, like nothing else. Though there are pictures on this earth. By His Spirit, He took me, dead in trespasses and sins, joined me by the bond of faith to Himself, quickened me, and gave to me not just salvation, but He gave to me Himself so that I can say, not only I belong to Him, but He belongs to me. I am thy God, he says. And you are my people. And it is exactly, it's exactly because he has taken ownership of me this way. Because he has given this experiential knowledge of this truth to me. That I have comfort. Children, children, this is not this is not high theology over your heads. If you're listening, you understand this. This is simple truth that you know and can experience yourself today also. You know that simple truth. I belong to Jesus. You can say with Paul, 
And say it today to your parents too. Paul said it to the people on the ship with him. And you see your parents. You see your parents grieve today perhaps. You see the adults even sorrow and feel disturbed because of the present circumstances. You confess along with them. We belong to Jesus Christ. Whose I am. And whom I serve. By virtue of election. By virtue of redemption. Creation. And covenant. With him. That's the content. Of our comfort. And to belong to this Jesus. Has many ramifications. And four especially. Which the catechism points out. Many wonderful blessings which flow from this belonging. Four words that start with P to help us remember it. First, it's pardon. Belonging to Jesus Christ, I have pardon. Forgiveness. And that Again and again and again, after I sin, feel the, feel the guilty feelings of sin. He tells me again and again. He declares to me again and again through faith. And as He turns me to Him, remember you belong. You belong to me. You belong to Jesus Christ and therefore, I forgive you. I pardon you. And you ask, how does that help me now? How does pardon help me in this present storm of life, in the trials that I face today? It's not really my sins I struggle with, is it? Well, this is how. Think of how it helped Paul when he faced Eurycliton. Every other person on that ship, unbelievers, could see they could only see and take the storm as God's wrath against them. They could only take it that way. And what they knew or thought they were going to face, death very soon, was going to bring them before the face of a wrathful God they knew. Perhaps not intellectually that they could express, but they felt it in their souls. Wrath, punishment, hell. Euryclidon said all that to them. But Paul, knowing his pardon in Jesus Christ, the covering of all of his sins, he knew the comfort that this storm, even this storm, though all around it seemed as though hell was breaking loose, this storm could not be punishment against him because he already received full pardon in Jesus Christ. And that full punishment had come upon Jesus completely, could never come upon him. That's how pardon fits with every trial, beloved. Nothing can be against you, but only for you. Second, power. By belonging to Jesus, there is pardon and power. Real spiritual power. An inner strength. That's what comfort is, remember. An inner strength 
that enables me to fight sin, battle my besetting sins. He has delivered me from all the power of the devil, the catechism says, and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. What a blessing of belonging to Jesus. If I belong to him and he belongs to me, then his strength is mine. Strength against sin and also strength as you see in Paul. A strength of stability. Yes, to fear it sometimes, even at first. To be shaken because our faith is still weak on this earth. But then, by the power of the Spirit, to have a peace and a calm, the strength of God within. And third, preservation. Blessing of belonging to Jesus is pardon, power, and preservation. And so preserves me, the catechism says. That without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. That's also what Paul said, notice, to the sailors, to the people on the ship in verse 34. Not even a hair will fall from your head today. That's the power of God. Nothing can happen except it be according to His will. Not even one hair can fall from your head. No devil can attack. No sin can come upon me. No trial. No conflict. No suspension. No church issue. Unless God, by His will, sovereignly brings it to pass. Preservation. To preserve me. Paul knew preservation. He knew God would preserve him all the way to Rome. And we know preservation, don't we? He will preserve us as his people. He will preserve us through the worst of afflictions, through the worst of controversies, and even through death. He will preserve us souls. And bodies. Pardon. Power. Preservation. And finally purpose. The purposes of God are always for our good. The catechism says. As a blessing of belonging to Jesus. That all things must be subservient. To my salvation. All things must be. For. My good not only generally. For my salvation. This experiential knowledge is your comfort. The content. I belong to God, to Jesus Christ, whose I am. By virtue of 
election, creation, redemption, covenant. With many blessings. But now there is one more word to consider as I close. And that word is only. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Exclusive comfort. That's a difficult word. But it's the confession of the catechism. It's the confession of Paul. It is one thing to say this. What is your only comfort in the face of death? Think about death. In death, yes, we as God's people rush to this. Our only comfort in time of death, my loved one's death, and, and my own impending death is this. I belong to Jesus Christ, whose I am, whom I serve. But here's the challenge in life and death. In life and death, my only comfort in life and in death is this experiential knowledge of Christ, whose I am, whom I serve. Really, is that true of you? And you should ask, what about, what about my comfortable bed? What about my comfortable vacation? And I look forward to, what about the comforts of life? The food, I say, is comfort food. What about my comforting family members? A spouse who is so comforting to me. Are there not so many other things and people in my life which are my comfort? And so when the catechism says or asks, what is your only comfort in death and in life? You might want to respond this way. My comfort first, first and foremost, I belong to Jesus Christ. But then after that also, I have comforts, I have, I have money, I have stability in the home, I have more ups and downs, I have other people and things that are comforts to me too. The catechism doesn't let us do that. The question is, what is your only comfort in death and in life? Can you truly answer, my only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And then you realize that the word comfort, really, the word comfort, really ought not be used for all kinds of things, and even people. But it's for description of belonging to Jesus only. And belonging to Jesus only. 
then I know He gives me freely all things for my good. To help you realize that your only comfort is Jesus Christ, think about life without the knowledge of belonging to Jesus. Let's say you have an easy life. No pain, no surgery, no cancer, no hardship, no conflict in family and church, even at least outwardly, money, just the right amount of perfectly behaved children, success. You have all the so-called comforts. Let's say you have everything and not the experiential knowledge that you belong to Jesus. Then here is your state. Here is what you will know in your heart as much as you try to block it out. God is your enemy. He has chosen to destroy you in His wrath. All things, nice things, pleasurable things, all things are to fill up your cup of wrath, to set you on slippery places that your destruction might be greater. All things work together not for good but for evil. You are on your own with your idols. You belong to Satan under his power, soon to join him in hell. That's your life without the comfort of belonging to Jesus. What say you? Where is your comfort? In anything? In anyone? Considering that, the child of God clings harder by faith, the faith which the Lord gives to Jesus only. Give me Jesus. In this life you can have all, all this world. Just give me Jesus. He is my comfort in life and in death. Whose I am. Whom I serve. Amen. Let's pray. Father, O God of all comfort, Cause thy word, though spoken in weakness, to be a power unto our salvation and comfort. May thy Holy Spirit, thy very breath, personal being, so speak personally to our hearts. May he as the comforter remind us of thy word which we know and cause it to be an experiential knowledge day by day so that even in the greatest of storms that we face and will face, we may always confess Thee, our belonging to Thee, to be our only comfort. For Jesus' sake we pray, for the glory of His name we desire these things. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to them to be notified as future messages are published. We welcome you to join us on Sundays for worship at 9.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org. Also, you can follow us on our Hope Protestant Reformed Church Facebook page. And you can email the Reform Witness Committee with any questions or feedback at hope rwc at gmail.com. Thank you.